week's reading for the first Sunday of Lent comes out of Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, commonly known as the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. May the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. Recently, I was watching a TV show, and in the episode of this show, every one of the main characters was kind of talking about brushes that they had had with fame, times when they had come close to another person, when they had found or seen or interacted with someone who was famous. That happened to me it's happened to me a couple of times, but the one that I mainly remember happened during my final year of college. I went to college at Iowa State over in Ames, Iowa, and during my last year of school, I worked in the concession stand, or one of the concession stands at a place called Hilton Coliseum. It's kind of the big stadium, or one of the big stadiums where the basketball team plays there for Iowa State. And they hosted a lot of different events, and I worked at a lot of these different events. Well, one of them that happened, I was really, really excited to be working at because we hosted Monday Night Raw of, the, of World Wrestling Entertainment. Now, it was called the World Wrestling Federation back at that time, WWF. Now it's WWE, but we were there, and I was a wrestling fan in those days, so I was pretty excited about this. I knew that there were all these famous wrestlers, these people that I'd seen on TV. They were around, but they were doing their thing. And as staff members, we weren't supposed to really go after them and interact with them. So we were just there doing our job. But there was this one moment where I was going down in an elevator to where we would get ice for the concession stand. And I had my, my cart with the buckets where I was going to put the ice, and I'm in, in the elevator, and there's a guy that's in there with me, and I'm not really paying attention to him. I just, at a glance, it was a guy. He was about my height. He was definitely heavier than I was. I noticed he's wearing a track suit, but nothing too major, and I kind of wasn't really paying attention to him, just sort of standing there in my corner of the elevator, when all of a sudden I glanced over, and he was looking at his watch, and this was the biggest stinking Rolex that I'd ever seen. It was the size of my head, I swear. And then I looked a little bit closer, and I realized this was one of the wrestlers. This was a guy named Devon Dudley, who I had seen on TV countless times before. And he must have seen that I was kind of looking at him, and, and, and so then he interacted with me, and he, he said, oh, he could tell that I worked there. He, sa he says, you must be a staff member. And I said, yeah. And he says, hey, I just want you to know, I, we really appreciate all the work you guys do behind the scenes. You're doing your thing so that we can do our thing, and we really, really appreciate it. And it was just a super brief interaction. It only lasted for probably 15 or 20 seconds as we were going down in the elevator and then the doors opened up and I walked out and, and that was kind of the end of it but it made me realize the fact that 
He was just a person. And that, in turn, made me think of, of the headlines that sometimes we see when we're waiting in line at the grocery store, or sometimes you'll see these articles online, celebrities, they're just like us. And then they go into the ways that, that famous people have been, have been captured doing random things that we all do. That idea, I think, lies on top of what we're talking about today, the temptation of Jesus. Now here we are in Lent, the first Sunday in the season of Lent, as we are beginning to move our way towards the darkness that will happen at Holy Week and what Jesus will experience through his, his torture and his arrest and his betrayal and his death on the cross and all of that. We're moving that direction. Every single year, regardless of which of the scripture, the, the, which of the gospels we are focusing on for the year, we always have this story, the temptation of Jesus here on the first Sunday of Lent. I've gone round and round and round with myself wondering, why do we need to have this story? Why is this story so important? And it is an important one. It's featured in multiple gospels. They all feature this moment when Jesus is tempted. And maybe, just maybe, this moment serves as a reminder of the humanity of Jesus, that whatever it was that God was up to through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he was manifesting his full humanity. And just as we are broken, flawed people who are tempted, Jesus too was tempted. Jesus, he's just like us. Maybe he's not just like us, but hey, human, and as such, he was tempted. Now, this is an interesting story. I've oftentimes focused in on this through my lessons with confirmation students. In fact, we just studied this in my confirmation class not, uh, not more than a week or two ago, and it's a really interesting situation to take a look at. But before we get too deep into it, we need to remember where it is that we are going and where it is that we are within the gospel narrative. Now again, Lent, we're getting close to the end. The ministry section that Jesus has been up to has pretty much come to a close as he's moving towards Jerusalem. But this moment, this story actually happens very early on in the gospel narrative itself. In Luke's gospel, immediately preceding this moment, we have the genealogy of Jesus, basically the, the, the people, the ancestors of Jesus going down through the generations until we get to him. And immediately preceding that, which itself is kind of a side note narration, we hear the baptism of Jesus. So if we are to back up ever so slightly to immediately before this begins, we have Jesus going out into the wilderness to the Jordan River where his, his cousin John the Baptist is active. Jesus himself is baptized, and that moment is amazing. In the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. The heavens are ripped open. The Holy Spirit resides upon Jesus, empowering him. And the voice of God the Father booms out, this is my beloved son. That claim of God, that identity of God on Jesus as beloved child. That has happened. And then that same Holy Spirit, which resides upon him, empowers him and leads him out into the wilderness for this moment. Now, folks, I've been to the Holy Land. I've been to Israel. And tradition places the, the, this whole setting, both the baptism and then the temptation, in a very small area in the southern port, portion of, of, of the Holy Land, kind of out to the southwest of, of Jer the city of Jerusalem. 
And he didn't have to go very far to get to the place where tradition says this was all, where all these temptations happen. But it's interesting. The Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. And we hear he's out there for 40 days. And during this 40 days, Satan was tempting him. We hear about three. There was very possibly more. We hear he's tempted throughout the course of the 40 days, but we know about these three. And we also hear that during that 40 days, Jesus wasn't eating anything, and I can only imagine how hungry he was. Folks, I get hungry after a couple hours. I can only imagine what a, a month plus would do. We hear he's famished. He's hungry, and who can blame him? And the very first temptation that he undergoes, the first thing that Satan throws at him is to play on his physical need, on his hunger. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Well, Jesus isn't having it. Jesus is not going to rework God's creation simply because he's hungry. It is written, man does not live on bread alone. And Satan seems to go, darn it, I missed on that one. It didn't work. Then we hear, Satan shows him all the nations of the world, all the power, all the authority, all of the, 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 the glory, which seems to be held in the hands of Satan. He says, all this I can give to you if you would just bow down and worship me. I don't know what he's playing at there, but it seems that maybe just maybe Satan is playing at the idea of, of pride or, or the, the quest for glory or the quest for authority or maybe he's looking into the idea that hey you're supposed to be the messiah well the messiah is kind of an earthly ruler so do you want political power i can give that to you all you have to do is turn your back on god and worship me and jesus isn't having that either throws throws some some scripture back at the devil one more time and it seems that there's one more thing that Satan's going to do. And so Satan takes him into Jerusalem and sets him on the peak of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. It is written, he will command his angels and they will bear you up so you do not strike your foot against a stone. Interesting, isn't it? That even Satan is using scripture back at Jesus. Jesus is battling these temptations by quoting scripture. Well, Satan quotes it right back to him again. But Jesus once more is not having it. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. These are the temptations that we hear about. That Jesus is tempted just like we are, but Jesus somehow overcomes it. Now, in the conversation that I had with my students recently, I posed the question, well, if Jesus is simply quoting scripture back, does that mean that if all we have to do is know the Bible cover to cover and every time we're tempted, we just quote some scripture and we're going to be good to go? Is that all it takes? And they scratched their heads for a minute. We talked about it for a minute. And then we realized, well, if that's all it takes, aren't we also then falling in the temptation of pride, thinking that we can earn our way through temptation? Temptation, brokenness, whatever it is that we want to call it, it's crafty. Satan is crafty. Now, whether Satan is a real entity or not doesn't really matter. The forces that are acting contrary to the desires of God, to whatever it is that God is inviting reality forward into, those forces that are working against it is crafty. And it's deep-seated, and it's in the world, and it's in each one of us. Now, Jesus overcomes it. And that's a wonderful thing. And what's even more wonderful is Jesus is overcoming it on our behalf. But I'm getting ahead of myself when I say that. What I think is really, really interesting when we consider the idea of 
celebrities, they're just like us. And Jesus, he's human, just like us, is the idea of the way Satan hits him. Not once, but twice. At the beginning, the first temptation, and at the third temptation, we hear, if you are the son of God, prove it. Is that not a trap that we all fall in at one time or another? Sometimes we do it to ourselves when that little voice is in the back of our heads that's saying, hey, you're not good enough. We know the truth about you. You know the truth about yourself. This isn't really for you. You might think it is. Other people might tell you it is, but it's not really for you. You aren't really good enough. God doesn't really love you. You are not really claimed by God. But in Jesus' case, Jesus, who is standing in for us in this situation, is that not exactly what has already happened? Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit from his baptism, where God literally said, you are my beloved son. The claim of God is very real and very present for Jesus, even though that voice of doubt, that voice of temptation, that little voice in the back of his head is saying, if that's really who you are, you have to prove it. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows the truth about himself. Jesus believes the truth about himself, that he is the son of God. And that is the example that I believe we are called to follow in this instance. We are tempted every bit as much as Jesus. Unlike Jesus, we don't have the power of the divine within us to overcome. And there are times when we all fall to that temptation, that brokenness, that, that sinfulness that is a part of every single one of us. It comes through no matter how good our intentions are. But we also are able to rest assured that whatever it was that Jesus would go on to accomplish through his life and then his death and then his resurrection, it was overcoming the power of that brokenness that's a part of all of us. Now, just like Jesus, we have a sign, we have an action, we have a situation that we also can cling to when we are claimed by God as beloved child. Now, we profess the faith here in the Lutheran church that that happens in baptism. That in baptism, we too, like Jesus, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and are claimed by God as beloved child, entered into communion or entered into the family of this thing called the body of Christ. But I also believe that God can and does claim anyone that God chooses. Anyone who God calls very good, which if we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, we see that's all of humanity. I believe that God has claimed us all as beloved children, and that we can rest easy in that. But that little voice back here that tells us sometimes, prove it, sometimes that voice can get real loud. And that's when we are called to believe and to hold on to this truth and profess it to one another. Sometimes we have to share the burden of faith for one another. Now that does not mean that I believe it for you and that makes you okay. More so, I, it me, I believe that it means that I believe it and I profess it to you over and over again until the Holy Spirit can strengthen you to the point where you're believing again. We all have those moments of doubt. We all have those moments of fear, those moments when we wonder, is this really for me? Well, hear it from me today. It is for you. You were lovingly made by the one who made all of this and claims you as very good. You are a beloved child, 
and there is no test, there is no action, there is no, no statement that you have to make in order to make that any more or any less true. It is already true because God has said it. It doesn't matter what that little voice in the back of your head says. It doesn't matter. Whatever it was that Jesus was accomplishing, it was making it possible to overcome that brokenness that's a part of all of us, simply because God loves you and claims you.